This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. The Prime Minister, who appeared to be hiding a bagel in his desk. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume. I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary. The word was F-A-R-T. Let's just say this is a little bit awkward. She's drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a plastic. Uh, sorry. 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 And I'm really sorry. Hello, I'm Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and sports. <laughs> Today on the show, our unreciprocated love affair with Americans, if you measure love by open borders, that is. And our last week's anti-hate summits a sign that elected officials are finally taking hate seriously in this country? The answer is maybe, which might just be pretty good. Joining me is Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief at The Hub, who's currently visiting his family in Alberta, where the premier will not let the lefties take away his pickup trucks. Welcome back, Stuart. (laughs) Hey. We also have Emily Nicola, columnist at Le Devoir and the Montreal Gazette, who is eligible for a $150,000 cash prize from Lotto Quebec, if she's been vaxxed, that is. I am, and I'm going to get my bag of money. (laughs) And Jessica Sandu is back. He's the senior consultant at Crestview Strategies, co-founder of Boz News, and fellow Peel Region resident where 93% of us have our first dose because we're just awesome. Greatest people on earth. So it's summertime and our producer Tiffany and I are suffering a serious case of wanderlust. There has been a lot of pressure on Canada to open the border, and they're finally opening the borders next week on August 9th to Americans. The tourism and airline industries have been pushing the government to open it up well before the end of the summer. And as soon as the August 9th announcement was made, WestJet suddenly said they don't actually need Canada's money anymore. Take that however you will. There are also a lot of confusing rules here. The border will only be open to fully vaccinated American citizens and permanent residents. It will open to the rest of the world a month later, as long as they have one of the four vaccines that's been approved in Canada. Not all Canadians will be allowed into the United States on the same day, however. Shortly after Canada made their border opening announcement, the U.S. extended their border closure to at least August 21st. Stuart... Please explain this chaos. Why does Canada want to open their border right now? (laughs) 
yeah, I'm not sure I can explain the chaos. Um, for me, this more than anything it shows the strange situation of politics and scientific advice um, coming together to sort of make these Frankenstein uh, decisions. And I actually don't like I'm not totally sold that that's a bad thing. I think that it's really important for politicians to listen to what people want. And, you know, there was a lot of debate about this during the pandemic that, you know, this politician is playing politics and not listening to science. But I always felt like there was a point where the politician, if they made a choice entirely based on science and didn't listen to what people could actually do or would take, might run into a lot of trouble or might lose people. Um, so, yeah, this, there's a lot of politics here. And part of it is that the Ontario Premier Doug Ford has been pretty vocal about the border uh, from the beginning. And from the beginning, the Liberals have been skeptical that closing borders would do anything. And I think the real answer is somewhere in the middle, where we did find early on that in the beginning of transmission, places that were close to international airports got early infections and early outbreaks. But then after that, it's hard to really trace things. And that's partly because a virus is hard to trace and partly because, you know, once it gets in, it's in. So the question of reopening borders has a lot of the same politics as the early decisions on closing borders. And let's never forget that we're probably like a few weeks away from an election being called. And Canadians, if you believe polling, are pretty happy to keep Americans out of their country. And I think that's maybe some sort of um, residue from the Trump years, where basically the Canadian sense was that the United States was just teeming with COVID at all times, and we should probably just keep those guys out of our country. So I think that's what's happening here, is there's um, you know a push from business leaders to open up this massive border that leads to a lot of economic activity and a lot of tourism. And there's a lot of Canadians who just feel like they should be able to go to Miami or, you know, Maine or wherever. And, you know, I was grew up in Halifax. I've been paying attention to the Atlantic bubble a little bit. One thing that's really interested me about all of this is if you look at the Nova Scotia economy, it's highly based on tourism, but they don't care. They just want people to stay out of there right now. So look at the jurisdiction of you know, Nova Scotia and look at the jurisdiction of, say, BC, there's entirely different perspectives there on this stuff. So, you know, when we're talking about federal decisions on this, they're only ever going to be incoherent. You know, we've been listening to Dr. Tam weigh in on things as if there is one answer for Canada, and there just really isn't. Okay, on the on the topic of U.S. and Canada relations, though, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Perrin Beatty, criticized both U.S. President Biden and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying that both leaders had promised to take a coordinated approach to border opening, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Jessica, will this asymmetry between Canada and the U.S. lead to tensions between politics and industry? Because I can imagine a lot of businesses are are trying to do some cross-border business. And, and is this representative of the criticism or frustration of the Canada-U.S. relationship that I think is being repaired under Biden, basically. Uh, asymmetry between Canada and U.S. discussions, you say. Well, it sounds like mm -hmm. an ongoing theme of this country uh, <laughs> and, and the legacy of uh, North America. I, I think for a lot of folks, uh, you know, kind of to Stuart's point, uh, the decisions that are made around borders are, are so political. 
uh, and, and a lot of people care about what happens at the border. And obviously in America, that it seems to be a piece of conversation that's, uh, that dominates uh, a lot of the politics that happens down there. And so obviously there's, there's going to be a, a, a bit of tension over anything that has to do with cross-border travel. I really do think they're trying their best to take in consideration industry. You know, that border is, is incredibly important. The, the trade relations between the U.S. and Canada is, is obviously of, of the utmost importance between both countries. And, you know, I think there's... No recent conversations around, uh, you know, how China's taking a bigger, bigger market share of trade with other countries around the world and America's slowly losing its position. I think all this stuff to be taken into real consideration by the Biden administration. I think the Trudeau government obviously sees this as incredibly important because we have to, right? Well, I mean, I guess there's also the, the, the topic of or the rumor of a U.S. President Biden making the traditional first visit to Canada. Is, is all the border talk just facilitating that? Yeah, maybe. Like, who knows? Maybe he comes here and he drops it, right? And it's like this big hoorah and, and Biden's like carried through the streets on the shoulders of the bigwigs on uh, Bay Street, right? Like, you know, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. I don't think this is something that's just like a simple, easy kind of political thing. There's a, there's a lot of uh, different levers that are being pulled on any kind of decision making around this. And I can tell you, I, I think for most industry folks and for most folks in government, they want that border open up quickly and they want it open up fast because they know just as well as everyone else that, uh, you know, Canada and the U.S., especially Canada, succeeds uh, when that border is open and porous uh, as much as possible, if, especially for commerce. Of course, the other possible cure for all of this is vaccine passports. Um, a political story by Justin Ling reported that Canada won't have a national COVID-19 vaccine passport system until at least December 2021. A leaked presentation from the Treasury Board showed that despite being 15 months into the pandemic, the Canadian government still doesn't have a plan for travel and proof of immunity. Hence my annoyance. Instead, Ottawa is deferring to all the provinces and territories to create their own internationally recognized proof of vaccination certificates, or what we're calling vaccine passports. Ottawa has even given Deloitte Canada a $16 million contract to connect the provincial systems with the federal systems, which currently don't exist. Emily, we've seen this playbook so many times during the pandemic. Ottawa announces a thing, defers to the provinces and a private company. How important is it that we figure everything out when it comes to travel and and maybe have a vaccine passport? I think that we all have provincial driver's licenses and they're all recognized internationally. For example, so that there's ways uh, for provinces to be issuing official documents that actually count and matter. So I'm not sure that's really the issue is. The issue is the lack of clarity on what's actually going to happen. And I think that issue is going to stay with us for a little while. For example, um, there are some vaccines that are approved in Canada, but not in other countries. And there's the question of will people be able to travel to those countries if they're vaccinated with those other vaccines, just like Canadians are saying that only the people with the four vaccines you know, approved in Canada will be able to come in. There's some questions about mixed doses. If you had a mixed dose, will all countries be able to recognize that? Is there issues with uh, people who've had one dose uh, but have been proven to have COVID-19 in the past? Most people are are considered fully vaccinated in some parts of the country. Uh, Is that going to enable people to travel? So I think that's the chaos that's going to be, you know, difficult. Not necessarily proving that, for example, I have received two doses of Pfizer, but are those two doses valid uh, everywhere? And that, I think, is going to be the, the issue that we need to be looking at. Well, sure, you had mentioned the provinces, right, and how how all the different approaches they've been taking to 
borders and and vaccine proofs and so forth. We've got Ontario, Alberta and Saskatchewan who are strongly opposed to any sort of vaccine passport. They argue that it will infringe on rights. Um, and then you've got Quebec and Manitoba who are provinces that are actually talking about vaccine passports and and. In Manitoba, the demand is so high, they have to stop printing them for a little bit because card supplies ran low. And then at the same time, you've got business owners who are saying that let's have vaccine passports because it might actually ensure that they stay open in the face of possible case increases. What is the source of the tension nationally? I mean, like, I remember having an immunization record as a kid. Isn't this just the same thing? Why is it so complicated? Is this about conservative leaders, like, putting their foot down on another thing? Yeah, it's a hard one, because I'll admit to sort of a visceral, uneasy feeling about vaccine passports. It's not something that I think is a reliable gauge of my opinion, but I don't like it. I don't, I, the idea of it fills me with unease. And um, one thing I will note about Alberta, though, is it's still majority support for vaccine passports. It's lower than the rest of Canada, but people seem to be into the idea. And I was just in Calgary where, you know, the Calgary Stampede, which is not like the Edmonton Folk Festival, like it's a different crowd. They had requirement of uh, vaccines for Nashville North. And the situation there is pretty interesting where you can either show proof of vax or you can get a rapid test when you're going in. And one of my friends got a rapid test and they did the test. You have to wait an hour an hour because it's rapid, but it's not that rapid. And then they call you back in and they tell you your results. And because it's some medical information, they have to kind of, you know, text you and say, please come back and talk to this person. And you go into a private room and they tell you. Um, so, you know, I'm double vaxxed and I think I would be very happy to show my proof of vaccination to avoid that rigmarole to get into Nashville North uh, if I were planning on going there. And I think that is probably what we're going to see. It's just going to be a real pain to live your life without this friction. I think the reason that I kind of feel this uneasiness is because I have, you know, I live in sort of a normal suburban neighborhood outside of Ottawa. And speaking to my neighbors, I've heard some I guess what we're calling now vaccine hesitancy, not anti-vaxxers. These aren't people who have like watched YouTube and have conspiracy theories. These are people who have told me, I am really nervous about a vaccine that only took a year to make. It's not like they're crazy looking back on the history of vaccines that we have had some horrible issues. You know, I've read into the current vaccines. I feel 100% confident about them, mRNA vaccines in particular. It's hard to imagine how that could go wrong. But I don't feel like my neighbor who has that hesitancy is a bad person or that she's necessarily, it's not a crazy thing for her to think that. So uh, what she told me was that if they made her do it for travel, she'd probably just do it. So that's the kind of nudging I think that will probably work. The same thing, it's a very interesting case study right now is watching the NFL where they're creating a better situation for teams that have a higher vax rate. I just wanted to add more sports to our discussion. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's just, it's one more nudge. And there's a debate going on in the NFL right now that is going to be a microcosm of the broader societal debate. And maybe I'm a little bit too concerned about the divisiveness of the pandemic. Like, I just tend to think about that a lot. And it worries me a lot. And I consider this as potentially being one more element of divisiveness where we create two classes of people. And some of those people are nuts and, you know, bad actors. But some of them are just like my neighbor who 
is like slightly misinformed, but has sort of an understandable fear. So maybe the vaccine passports won't create that kind of vision. But I do feel like maybe we should exhaust these other nudges that may be a better, less confrontational way of going about it. It's interesting because I think I also see vaccine hesitancy, but not in the way that you have with your neighbor. For me, it's more like the lack of clarity is just confusing the F out of people's brains because, you know, our producer Tiffany and I talk about this a lot. We both have parents who've been vaccinated in other countries and with vaccines that haven't been approved by Canada, but they want to come and visit. They have done their duty and gotten vaccinated. But there are no guidelines for them, even though they're Canadian citizens, in terms of what he should be able to do to come to Canada. And then, like, say we want to take a family vacation and go to PEI or go to BC or something. There are no rules or clarity around that. Um, Mm -hmm. So for me, the question is, what's the political fallout with Canada's approved vaccines or with, you know, vaccine passports? The selectivity just seems, dare I say, a little racist and a little suspect. (laughs) Jessica? Yeah, see, that, that's a great question because, you know, okay, there's an election around the corner. A huge constituency in incredibly important parts of this country, right? So let's say lower mainlands, part of Peel Region 905, live in India, which is uh, currently still banned from traveling back to Canada. There's tons, there's thousands of people. So everyone has a family member or knows someone that's stuck in India and they're not allowed to come back. Now, there's also like the whole, uh, to your point, around the different types of vaccines that have been used, uh, for example, in a place like India uh, that may or may not be approved. So like, there's all these like kind of the intersecting issues of how this, how this is all going to play out. Uh, on the issue of like vaccine hesitancy, kind of just going to earlier points that Stuart was making. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are hesitant uh, around even getting their second shot because they don't want to mix vaccines. Uh, so people took, uh, you know, they took Pfizer the first time. Now they're getting Moderna. Like this is a big issue in, in a lot of different communities because of just a lot of you know, misinformation, but also just really uh, nonsensical kind of retractions and new statements kind of going back and forth from different folks. Uh, that's just confusing folks. There's so many different pieces to this. It's hard to kind of put your finger on it of how this is actually going to play out and w- what the politics of all this is. I think this is why we're talking about it, right? Because virtually all of Europe is uh, covered by some sort of vaccine passport now. And Australia and New Zealand are on their way to having one. France has taken a particularly strong stance. They've approved a law requiring special COVID-19 passes for all restaurants and domestic travel and mandating vaccinations for all health workers. I particularly like liked the strong language French President Emmanuel Macron used. He said, what is your freedom worth if you say to me, I don't want to be vaccinated, but tomorrow you'll infect your father or your mother or me. So what's the fear here? I don't think we're infringing on rights, are we? Why the fear to just do something that instills some clarity and gets everyone vaccinated and allows life to go on, as it were? Because it's the land of the free. You know, freedom reigns (laughs) in Canada, (laughs) unlike Europe. It's, It's why we all left Europe. Uh, our ancestors left Europe I mean, to to move here to Canada. It was because the oppressive regimes there, and this is kind of like be a, I guess a conservative talking point. I don't know, but like to Stuart's point, I do agree. Like I, I think there's nudges, there's things you can do to convince people that it's their best interest to get a vaccine without kind of holding a gun to their head. And and I think there's something to be said about encouraging people and persuading them to go a certain direction rather than forcing them to. And I think that aligns with kind of ways that we can get things done here in Canada without, I guess, sounding too conservative about it. I guess I'll just have to wait to travel. Sad face. 
Where do you want to go anyways? Everything's in Canada. Ontario is yours to discover. Come to Alberta, man. It's beautiful here. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Point of order, Madam Speaker. What's your point of order, Stuart? Uh, well, I think I actually wanted to zoom out a little bit um, from our pandemic situation in Ottawa, where I live, there's a handful of cases every day. Last I checked, there was nobody in the hospital at all, never mind the ICU. And I think 10 years from now, when we look back on this, we're going to be looking back on something that was kind of a slow motion scientific miracle. Um, these vaccines are extraordinary. They happen so quickly. It's it's almost jarring. I think it is worth dwelling on this every now and then, that we got to witness one of the most horrific years and I think when you look at the vaccines and what they've done for us, you know, eight years is the average time for a vaccine. If it had been four years, I can barely fathom how hard that would have been. Um, we're coming up on a year and a half right now, and it's been a tough year, but we're coming out of it, I think. And then I think about the infection fatality rate of COVID. As horrifying as it was, it barely touched children. And I sometimes imagine how we would have handled a disease that went after our kids. And, you know, there was a study that came out a week or two ago in the UK. Um, the amount of children who died from COVID was lower than the flu in 2019. So just something to be thankful for. Uh, the vaccines are a miracle. It's not original, but I think it's worth saying every now and then. It's not a point of order, but I welcome the optimistic like perspective <laughs> on a novel pandemic that still shows no sign of ending. It's 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 good to feel lucky, I guess, about something. <laughs> Madam Speaker, point of order. What's your point of order, Jessica? Does it kind of feel like this year's Olympics in Tokyo has zero hype? I just get the sense that there's very little buzz. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just me. I don't know. Maybe we can do more to be patriotic and really cheer on our, our athletes uh, fighting for gold in Tokyo. Dude, what are you talking about? Like, Canadian women are crushing it and swimming. Like, yeah, this is an yeah. invalid point of order. I, there's a really cool gif that's been going around of the, the one swimmer squinting at the board. Yeah, to see Maggie McNeil, my queen. I only realized we're in the Tokyo Olympics when I saw that gif. Like that, and it's a gif, by the way, not a gif. That's another point of order. But I speak, I do have a point of order. What's your point of order, Emily? My point of order is that although I'm really glad that the Canadians made it to the standing cup final, I'm just still one of those people that is really pissed at P.K. Subban having been exchanged because he was too flamboyant. That's the word that was being used again and again and again in media uh, to be part of the Montreal Habs while he was like donating God knows how much money to the children's hospital and he was all over the place doing charity work. He wasn't good enough because he was like, I don't know, playing music too loud in the locker room or whatnot. And then, but the person who's like being accused of sexual uh, misconduct is better than that. And that I have a problem with. So like being like 
an asshole who posts naked pictures of women online versus like being too flamboyant on this ice. One gets you out of the habs and one gets you pecked. I have an issue with that. So that's my point of order. I mean, also not a point of order. And guys, people are going to start thinking we're a sports podcast now. (laughs) I don't need this. Look, at least we solved the whole question of who the good guys of the NHL is, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh, absolutely not. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. On a night cold enough to freeze your bones, a prospector searching for a legendary cursed gold mine vanishes without a trace. I'm Crew Williams, the host of Dead Man's Curse. This season, we retrace the steps of fortune seekers looking for a mother load worth billions who never came back. So come join our quest. Search for and follow Dead Man's Curse Volcanic Gold on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We need to fight Islamophobia, but we also need to fight anti-Semitism, anti-Black racism, anti-Asian racism, and of course we must commit to reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. Today, as you contemplate what measures we need to tackle hate, think of all the other groups who are also in pain and how they would benefit from your voice and the policies that you present. That was Mohammed Hashim, the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, speaking at the federal government's Islamophobia Summit last week. For some, this summit was 20 years in the making, the first national dialogue between the Muslim community and the government since 9-11 spurred an increase in hate. More practically, the summit was a response six weeks after the killing of the Afzal family in London, Ontario. Four Muslims across three generations who were killed while just walking on the street. The Muslim community demanded the conversation with the government, and MPs unanimously voted in favor of making it happen. The Islamophobia Summit followed another summit on anti-Semitism, a response to some violence recently in the wake of the ongoing Israel-Palestine conflicts. Both summits came with recommendations and promises to reduce hate across Canada. Jaskaran, what were your impressions of the summits? Community interest, box-ticking exercise, or was it something more? Yeah, I think the question and how you put it is bang on, right? Because I think it's really easy, and we've been hearing a lot of it from you know, cynical folks, uh, which I, I would put myself in that same category, who see uh, these summits as a sort of kind of performative reaction uh, to real serious issues on the ground. 
But as easy as it is to be cynical about everything, including this conversation, you do have to start with dialogue. Like you do have to start with bringing everyone together and taking input. We can have conversations who was invited and who wasn't uh, and what makes for a meaningful discourse. But I think dismissing uh, the summits in their entirety because it's just it's more talking is probably not fair. What really is going to prove to us that this was worthwhile is, I, I think, what comes out of it. And that's that's very difficult. I think there's a lot of mistrust in the Liberal government, who's who's done a very good job of having conversations and saying the right thing and having the right imagery associated and, and, and eliciting the right emotions out of folks, but not much in terms of like tangible results. Uh, and we've kind of seen that in different ways and shapes over the last five years. So I think there's there's a healthy amount of uh, skepticism, but it really is up, up upon all of us and, and important critical stakeholders, both in in this case the Jewish community and, and the Muslim community, to hold uh, government to account and, and ensure that this continues pushing forward. Because unless there's a healthy dose of shaming, and unless there's a healthy dose of uh, holding these you know these people, these decision makers, and their feet to fire, you know well, this may just end up just being more performative bullshit. So so let's talk about some of the tangible things that came out of the summits. Then right, if we're going to be uh, optimistic. Both summits flagged online spaces as something that has propagated hate and continues to propagate hate and information. One new UK report recently confirmed that online hate in Canada is on the rise in a concerning way. So I want to talk about Bill C-36. This is a bill we've mentioned in, in a previous episode. This is the government's legislation on criminalizing hate speech. The bill was tabled literally hours before Parliament ended for the summer and it will theoretically strengthen the Canadian Human Rights Act and empower the Canadian Human Rights Commission to punish hate. It's entirely possible that this whole bill gets canned if the Liberal government doesn't elect it, if there is an election, that is. But let's talk about the document right in front of us. Stuart, do we think this bill is an effective tool to reduce hate? So I agree that the temptation towards cynicism is always there. And it is especially there when the government comes up with a bill uh, in the final days of a parliament that's um, going away for the summer and when we expect an election to be soon. You know, there, there's certainly the prospect that this is a wedge issue meant to sort of put the conservatives in an awkward position before an election. Having said that, though, hate speech laws, I'm just not sure if that's the right tool for this. We have a lot of case studies about this. I mean, some of these laws in various forms are in place in Europe. In Europe, it is not rare to find hard right parties that either openly say racist things or that talk in a coded language about immigration or migrants or whatever. Uh, and these are in countries with really strict hate speech laws. And the second thing that I would say about those laws is that we should be really careful about unintended consequences. The big consequence in Europe seems to be that nobody feels safe saying anything. Something like 18% of Germans say they feel comfortable saying their opinions out loud. 17% feel comfortable saying them on the internet. There were protesters in France, 12 of them, who were arrested and fined for advocating a boycott of Israel. And the hate speech laws were used to do that. All of these consequences happen due to hate speech laws, but I don't see a massive decline in hard right racist language in Europe. I feel like these kinds of laws tend to either do nothing or they tend to have unintended consequences that we'd prefer we didn't see. I've never been this anxious before as a, as a Muslim Canadian, and I don't know what's causing it, you know? 
when 9-11 happened, I knew that was the cause. When Trump got elected, I knew what the, the cause was. In 2021, I don't know why the Abdul family was killed. I don't know why so many mosques in the aftermath were, were attacked. I don't know why Muslim women in Alberta are, are getting their hijabs ripped off their head. What's missing often from this conversation is the power analysis, right? Hate speech is very different if, if it's one person who says it, uh, who doesn't have a lot of followers versus if it's Donald Trump. And I feel like a lot of the times when we have laws against hate speech, we don't necessarily factor in, for example, the size of the platform of the person or the, the kind of authority that they, they have. And I'd say that a person who talks in dog whistle uh, with a huge platform is actually a lot more dangerous uh, than a person with an anonymous, you know, Twitter. And so that's what my uh, cynicism is, is coming from, is from people actually looking to shame people who are often, you know, not necessarily super powerful versus actually looking at where the power is. And the power is in algorithms, making sure that people who express uh, hate feel like they have the weight of the real people behind them. The power is in creating those populist echo chamber that makes a person not afraid to act on their prejudice because they feel like that prejudice is something that a lot of people are going to clap them and be behind them for. And so I think the power is in making sure that the person who is hateful is going to feel socially rewarded for being racist. And that's, I think, what has been shifting with, you know, online internet and, you know, the, the way that social media platform is. And I think if we're not talking about that, we are going back to a definition of racism that is like, this person is mean and like, I'm a good person. And when we're, when we're doing those, that very, very basic analysis of how racism work, that also hasn't gotten us nowhere. This is why I'm still cynical. Like, I appreciate that you, uh, Jessica Ren and Stuart, are trying to instill some optimism uh, coming out of these summits and also sort of watching the changes happening around the world that could inspire stronger Canadian efforts against Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and all other kinds of hate that we're talking about today. But politics was involved. We had Green Party leader Anna May Paul tweeting her dismay of not being invited despite being the only federal Jewish leader. Erin O'Toole also made a stink about not getting invited to the anti-Semitism summit and reportedly did not receive an invitation until late Tuesday, the night before, according to the CBC. And then in the meantime, you're just hearing a lot of what I think are Band-Aid solutions. You know, the government is throwing money at security infrastructure funds so that places of worship and community centers can buy things like CCTV cameras and fences and, and better lighting. We've got $6 million going to organizations via that fund. What will it take for governments, all levels of government in Canada, to figure out their role in curbing hate across institutions? Because I think that's what I see missing. Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, and I think the way that I think about this is um, maybe a little bit different because, you know, I mentioned Europe and there is a part of my brain that thinks, how good can we be? What can we do to be better? And there is another part of my brain that says, there are so many places on earth that are so much worse. And that must mean that we are doing something well. There's a, a political scientist called Eric Kaufman who was looking at Canada and saying, you know, why is there no Donald Trump in Canada? Why is there no federal party with a seat in the parliament that argues for less immigration? You know, the People's Party of Canada flamed out extravagantly 
And his theory is that, you know, Canada's identity is sort of based on nothing other than multiculturalism. And I'm talking about English-speaking Canada here. And his theory is that there is sort of a countrywide taboo on certain ideas. And, you know, these could be policy ideas. It is generally agreed among the elites that free trade is good. And another one is that immigration is good. There are a lot of immigrants in these elite circles and a lot of people who like increased levels of immigration. And it is kind of a taboo to argue otherwise. I think as members of racialized communities, we've heard hate all the time. We've heard those racist things that are not very dissimilar to what you hear in the United States, what Donald Trump says. I can't even count how many times I've been told, go back to where you come from. Like, man, I was, I was born here down the street. I've grown up in Brampton, where I've heard from white residents that there's too many brown people here. We're moving to Georgetown like this whole white flight type uh, mentality. We heard those things growing up. And we heard that regularly enough. That's it's like a shared experience of many other racialized people. And I, I don't think it's as taboo as we like to believe it is. What we really need to kind of zoom in in is like there's this general myth of Canadian modesty and politeness uh, that's used as a cover to dampen or avoid the real conversations we need to have about the lived experiences of folks in this country. And so I think part of the process here is, and and I think maybe one of the values of like a summit is that they become these symbols for normalizing, allowing these types of conversations in our country that we've done an excellent job of avoiding. For somebody who's been, you know, trying to fight racism, including Islamophobia in Quebec and elsewhere for more than a decade, one thing that I've noticed to go back very pragmatically to the question of the summit, um, there's been a lot of summits like that in a lot of different communities in the different years. And what happens is, first of all, the government picking who is gets to be a leader in certain communities. That's also one of the features of multiculturalism. Those are exercises of top-down dis- dis- decision of who's a legitimate voices in communities. And that's really problematic. We've seen that in the Black communities, for example, in the last couple of years, uh, where uh, government basically create federal bodies of discussion, decide who gets invited or not as a way to silence the voices that are actually more critical of what they're doing and have a more complete analysis of what's wrong with the liberal framework. That's one thing that those summits achieve. The other thing that it achieve is people pandering for votes and seeing us as just basically numbers in communities, the way that you would not see if people are coming to, you know, feminist organizations or in, in very internal groups, we, you, you see that with those kind of summits. And this is, I think, where the fighting for airtime story is, is been coming from. It's, it's just people trying to get ads slots basically into this. And that is historically been taking so much time away from actual discussions in real events that there's just no more time left for the actual agenda. What those events do is that they allow, especially when they're in person, community leaders from across the country usually don't have the money to fly in and meet each other in person to network and and to actually get to work together. And that's the part that's helpful. You know, it's when people are able to meet And then, you know, develop their own agenda that's not going to be government run and use that to actually, you know, find solutions together. I mean, I think Mohamed Hashim did a great job in that saying government does have a role to to play, but at the same time, 
communities need to get organized, allies need to get organized, and the Kenyan civil society has a role as well. And the solution is not going to come only from government. And certainly uh, not if the government is not trying to hold the private sector accountable when it comes to private media and private social media. If the government is not looking at those things seriously, then I don't know how much power the government actually has to do something in terms of what is spread, you know, spreading hate. On that note, let's adjourn. That's The Backbench. We'll be back in two weeks. You can write us at backbench at canadaland.com or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. If you like what you hear, please follow, subscribe, rate. We're everywhere, wherever podcasts are. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Uh, Stuart, where can people find you? Uh, go to thehub.ca. Uh, Jaskaran, where are you at? At Jaskaran Sandu underscore on Twitter. And Emily, where can people find you? Uh, Le Devoir, the Montreal Gazette, and on Twitter as well. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lam with additional production by Tristan Capacayone. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.